without me you can do nothing. So said our Lord Jesus, recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 5. Jesus spoke it, and Spurgeon preaches it in a sermon entitled Self-Sufficiency Slain, on that text, delivered on Sabbath morning, the 11th of November, 1860, at Exeter Hall. Spurgeon preaches this sermon, conscious that he depends upon Christ and upon the Spirit of Christ in this as much as in anything else. He launches quite quickly into this sermon, which is our featured sermon this week. It's number 345 in the new Park Street pulpit, and we're coming right to the end of those first six volumes, the collected sermons. God willing, next week, if you're reading with us, you'll break into the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, uh, the first volume of that, the seventh volume in this sequence. This week, we're reading from 339 to 345. Uh, the 345th sermon is this one on self-sufficiency slain. And God willing, next week, we'll look at the last sermon in the New Park Street pulpit for our featured sermon. And that's preaching man's privilege and God's power. But for this week, this sermon on John 15 and verse 5 in which Spurgeon states the remarkable fact that all the heresies which have arisen in the Christian church have had a decided tendency to dishonour God and to flatter man. And that's his concern in this sermon, that God then be honoured and man not flattered. In fact, he suggests that one true test of every doctrine is whether or not it glorifies God or exalts man. If it God is glorified, then the doctrine is true. If man is exalted, then it must be false. And so he launches with this concern into his text, the very word of Christ, he says, which contains in it a doctrine belonging to the class of those which speak against the vaunting of humanity, casting down its high hopes and scorning its proud looks. And just to the same degree, this sentence honours Christ and lifts him up in the estimation of all his people. Now, the sermon itself is uh, eminently practical, as we found so often. Indeed, uh, the arrangement of it is quite interesting, maybe a little bit more complex than usual. Spurgeon says that this statement of the Lord Jesus, that without me you can do nothing, is true of his saints in matters relating to themselves, even more manifestly true of unconverted and unregenerate men. And thirdly, it will be found by experience to be equally a fact if we look at saints in relation to sinners. That is, that without Christ, the most earnest saint can do nothing whatever for the conversion of the sinner. And we could almost say that the whole sermon is application. And therefore, we're going to look for the explanation, the exposition of the text woven into its substance, because uh, it's being applied really all the way through. And that means that the, uh, the the structure is perhaps a little bit more complex, a little bit more developed than usual. So the saint in relation to himself, Spurgeon is going to support it, uh, explain it, support it, and then learn from it. And within each of those headings, there's going to be a bit of a breakdown. And then he comes on to the unconverted man, and then he's going to turn to the Christian in relation to the sinner. So then, this first heading, the saint in relation to himself, 
Christ speaks personally to each child of God and says, without me, you can do nothing. Mark how decisively it speaks, because the text doesn't say, without me, you can hardly do anything. It says, without me, you can do nothing. And Spurgeon's point is that without the Lord Jesus, no matter how you strive, no matter how you struggle, your strength would be misapplied. If you attempt it outside of Jesus Christ, however earnest you are, however intense you are, however sincere you are, you cannot do what you set out to do. Further, the text does not say, without me, you cannot do some great things, special acts of piety, high and supernatural deeds of daring. No, without me, you can do nothing. Even the smallest deeds of piety, even the littlest acts of grace, even those which perhaps in our proud self-conceit we think we can cover. No, we can do nothing without the Lord Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon points to the experience of a Peter or a Job as examples, a, a Jonah too, of, of how uh, these men who could do great things in Christ's strength nevertheless could do nothing in their own. And he shows us some examples of that. Peter, for example, walking on the waves of the sea when he looks to Jesus, but he cannot bear the probing of a little maid when she accuses him of being a Galilean there in the high priest's courtyard. And he says, not just true of believers in the Bible, but with professed Christians down through the ages, John Newton says, The grace of God is as necessary to create a right temper in Christians on the breaking of a china plate as on the death of an only son. Now, he's not suggesting, of course, that those things are on a level. What he's saying is that we need the same grace from Christ in both instances in order to respond righteously under such circumstances. So, believer, you are sufficient for nothing at all. Without Christ, you can do nothing that is good, nothing that is right. Then he goes on. Christ did not say, without me, you can perfect nothing. But without me, you can do nothing. The Holy Spirit doesn't get us rolling and then leave us to sort things out for ourselves. Spurgeon says a Pelagian might admit that the Christian couldn't complete the good work, but that he might do much toward it. That is not what our Lord says. Without me, you can do nothing. That there is uh, no good thing in us, that there is no uh, accomplishment that we can uh, perform in our own strength. So far from being it, it's being thine to do much apart from the Spirit of God, says Spurgeon, you can do nothing whatever. And he's pushing, he's pushing. You can hear him stripping away our notions of self-sufficiency. There might be some who would say, well, while the text may be understood to say the believer cannot commence or begin any good thing, yet possibly he may be, after it is commenced, of great assistance to God the Holy Spirit in his own salvation. No, 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 says Spurgeon. When the Spirit of God is with us, we do much. When he is in us, he makes us the instrument of our own deliverance. But let the Spirit of God be taken away from the Christian man, even though he is renewed, even though he has a new heart and a right spirit. Yet would he retain that new heart and right spirit not one single hour if the Spirit of God were once withdrawn from him, not even the tenth part of a second. In other words, we rely utterly and always upon the work of Christ for us and in us 
by his spirit. Unrenewed nature can be a huge, huge impediment to grace, an obstacle to grace, but assistance it can never be. Whether it's the beginning or the continuing or the ending of life in Christ, there is nothing good that comes from us apart from him. That's Spurgeon's explanation of the text. Now he wants to support it, saying, can we really say these things? He says, first of all, it's the common consent of all believers in all ages. And he quotes a number of different confessions of faith in order to testify that this is so. The only people, he says, who are left out by this are ancient Pelagians and their modern offspring. Now, a Pelagian is a follower, doctrinally at least, of Pelagius, uh, who was a monk who contended with Augustine, uh, with regard to uh, free will and the uh, the origins of salvation in the souls of men as opposed to by the grace of God. And so uh, he actually quotes, Spurgeon that is, actually quotes here Arminius uh, as well as a, a modern Arminian, modern in his own day, a man called Richard Watson, both of whom are largely what we might consider to be Calvinistic in their doctrine at this point. Here's Arminius. It is impossible for free will without grace to begin or perfect any true or spiritual good. I say the grace of Christ which pertains to regeneration is simply and absolutely necessary for the illumination of the mind, the ordering of the affections and the inclination of the will to that which is good. It is that which operates on the mind, the affections and the will which infuses good thoughts into the mind, inspires good desires into the affections, and leads the will to execute good thoughts and good desires. It goes before, accompanies, and follows. It excites, assists, works in us to will, and works with us that we may not will in vain. It averts temptations, stands by and aids us in temptations, supports us against the flesh, the world, and Satan, and in the conflict it grants us to enjoy the victory. It raises up again those who are conquered and fallen. It establishes them and endues them with new strength and renders them more cautious. It begins, promotes, perfects and consummates salvation. I confess that the mind of the natural and carnal man is darkened, his affections are depraved, his will is refractory and that the man is dead in sin. At which point the most ardent Calvinist might say, as far as that goes, I'm happy to consider myself an Arminian. So Spurgeon says, some Arminians are not so sound even as Arminius or Richard Watson, who he also quotes here. But, he says, let me give one or two other remarks, not just the consensus of all believers in all ages, but suppose, he says, for a moment that the doctrine of our text were not true and that Christians had power in themselves to do something. Well, you take down your Bibles when you get home and see what a great many promises of the Word of God would be without any value to you. God, you see, never made a promise that was unnecessary. Now, if you can do what you need to do in your own strength, then God doesn't need to promise his strength to you. And yet that's what you find again and again in the Bible. Promises that have essentially become worthless because you don't actually need God to do those things for you you can do them for yourself. Why then are they there? For what purpose and to what end has God provided those promises? It is precisely because these are the promises that meet our real needs. 
We have no strength in ourselves. We have no power to do good. Therefore, it is needful that God should undertake to provide for us what we lack in ourselves. He says, why do I need to argue again? But let me just mention one more. If it were so that man had power in himself, what need the Holy Spirit's office at all? Why would you need a helper when you can help yourself? Why would you need someone to uphold and strengthen you? Why would you need someone to enliven you and enable you? Why would you need someone to teach you? If you can make yourself alive, keep yourself alive, walk in the way of your own ability, prayers for spiritual aid are unnecessary, uh, reliance on the Holy Spirit is a nonsense. But I am compelled to say each day that I can do nothing without him. My strength is wholly thine. The very fact that the offices of the Holy Spirit are needed by our experience proves that we can do nothing without him. Now, he says, let's improve this doctrine. Let's make the most of it. Let's learn what we can. Here's a reason for the deepest humility. Are you proud, believer, because you've done some little service to the church and to your times? What makes you to differ? And what have you which you have not received? Have you shed a little light upon the darkness? Ah, who lit your candle? And who is it that keeps you still shining and prevents you from being extinguished? Spurgeon's saying then, no matter what we have accomplished, what we have uh, progress we've made, what blessings we enjoy, that is God's work in us. You are the clay. God himself is the potter. If you're a vessel unto honour, you're not a vessel unto your own honour, but the honour of him that made you. And then when you are bowed down with humility, be prepared to learn another lesson, that is, never to depend on yourself again. And this is something I think that if we're Christians, we have to tell ourselves we, we unlearn and we forget all too easily that whenever we seem to be making progress, whenever we seem to be climbing high, whenever we seem to be attaining anything, when we accomplish something, how prone we are to imagine that we have done it ourselves and to take a little of the glory for ourselves. But, says Spurgeon, don't do it and learn to go in his strength. Do not go forth to any task leaning on an arm of flesh. First, bow your knee and ask power of him who makes you strong. I think if we're uh, doing any kind of Christian work, and by that I don't just mean sort of formal religious endeavor, but uh, if we're seeking to serve in our homes, if we're trying to encourage our wives or husbands or children, if we're trying to uh, speak to a friend, if we're evangelizing, if we're preaching, whatever it may be, how easily we depend upon ourselves and need to remember that without Christ we can do nothing. So Spurgeon says he'll help you if you are but as a worm, but if you are strong in yourself, he will take away his own power from you and cause you to stumble and to fall. And happy shall it be if you stumble not to be broken into pieces. Learn then the grace of depending daily upon God and do this constantly with proper humility. And he says, do not then grow independent. Don't get this little stock of grace on hand and think you'll spend your pocket money before you go again to your father's treasury. So don't get into this uh, habit or 
idea of self-reliance because every grain of self-strength we gain is a grain of weakness and every particle of self-reliance but a new particle of poison infused into our veins. From all reliance upon self and all carnal security, good Lord, deliver us. So that's his first point in this sermon. And perhaps you can see what I mean by uh, the, the relative complexity of it. The saint in relation to himself can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. And, and so he explains the text, without me, you can do nothing, not just hardly anything, not just not some great things, uh, and not just you can't finish it, and not you can, uh, if, if I can start it, you can complete it. Really, you can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. And then to support it, the consent of all believers in all ages, the reality of the promises of God, and then the uh, the very work and uh, uh, office of the Holy Spirit, and then the learning from the doctrine, the deepest humility, and then dependence upon God in all future endeavor. And now he turns to a second and brief part of his discourse that without me you can do nothing is not only true of the saint, but equally, if not even more forcibly true, of the sinner. Now here he takes a different approach. <coughs> he says instead of dividing didactically here, instead of trying to teach this out as I've done under the first heading, let me at once speak to the conscience. It may be here that Spurgeon is presuming that if you've heard what he said before, he's already laid some of the groundwork, and so he can now assault the conscience directly. Sinner, the child of God who has been quickened and renewed, feels that without Christ he can do nothing. How much more must this be true of you, for you are absolutely dead in trespasses and sins? So the point is that if a believer who's been brought into Christ is in union with him, has been grafted into the vine, if he can bring no forth no good fruit without the stem, how much less can you? It's uh, an argument by comparison that if uh, the one in whom there is spiritual life still depends entirely for that life and all its productivity on the one who gives life, then you who are without life, what do you think you will be able to do? Remember, he says, that you are utterly incapacitated. You cannot see or think or feel according to what you should apart from Jesus Christ and consider that your incapacity is a sinful one. It is not merely a misfortune but a sin. You are incapable of righteousness, yes, but capable enough of iniquity, and your very incapacity is in itself a deadly and a damning sin. It does not excuse you from your duty, but nevertheless you as a responsible creature are found lacking in the court of God. You have the same claims upon you as Adam in the garden, but you've lost all capacity to fulfil the demand." Oh, sinner, what a lost thing you are. What a lost thing you are. And then he says, so preaching like that is going to paralyze men's exertions. It will make someone say, I can do nothing. Perhaps you yourself, as you hear those quotes from Spurgeon, you're saying, oh, that sounds a little bit strong. It sounds a little bit discouraging. It sounds a little bit unfair. Spurgeon says, that's precisely the point I want you to reach, that you can do 
nothing. I want to paralyse your exertions. I want to strike you with a sense of your own inability. I want to make sure that the very thing a sinner concludes is that without Christ he can do nothing. Because when a sinner comes to understand that, then God the Spirit works in him and then the activity begins. But activity apart from a sense of inability is putting the sinner on a path which seems to lead to heaven but which will really lead to hell. In other words, the very conclusion that a sinner needs to reach is that I am in myself utterly lost and undone. Preaching now, he says, means that men are being received into churches that will need to be cast out again. The floor is getting heaped with chaff. People are being welcomed in even though they are not genuinely converted. They're being told that they can accomplish something, that they can turn from their own sins in their own strength. And the work of revival has been disgraced. God has made bare his arm. Multitudes have been converted by true work, but excitement has attended some of those revivals, nothing more than the excitement of the passions of men. Men are made to weep about their parents, but not about their sins, about their children, but not their souls, trembling for the moment, but not reaching their inmost heart. And so Spurgeon's concern is that the Spirit will strike men with a sense of powerlessness, that at once they may fall flat on their faces and feel in their inmost hearts that their salvation lies in Christ's hands and not in their own, that if you are saved, it must be the work of grace in you and of grace for you. It cannot be your own work since you have no power to do it in and of yourself. And again, it's this strength of preaching, this straightforwardness that would be relatively rare in our own day also. That there seems to be a, a drawing back at this point, an unwillingness to bring us face to face with our own depravity and inability. And Spurgeon, by the grace of God, will not allow us to imagine ourselves well when we are in fact sick he will not allow us to imagine ourselves alive when we are in fact dead. And so he acknowledges that. This doctrine is unpalatable. There are many of my hearers who do not like it now, and perhaps they will go away and say, this is a hard saying, who can bear it? His response, I do not expect the natural man to receive a spiritual truth. I thank God if you've received it. He who strips you will clothe you. He who kills you will quicken you. He that has made you feel that you can do nothing will give you strength to do all things. If you could see the bottom of your own treasury that there's not a farthing left in it, if you could feel your own emptiness, I am sure you would soon see Christ's fullness and discover that he is able to save unto the uttermost those who come unto God by him. So here is a complete and absolute assault on any notion of man's self-sufficiency. The idea that we can make ourselves alive, keep ourselves alive and promote ourselves in life. And interestingly, having just said, if I could only do this for you, I would, but I cannot. His third heading is that this is true, that without me you can do nothing, of the saint on the sinner's account. And now he's striking at what he might uh, call the revivalists, those who think that they can accomplish something 
uh, in their own strength, who, who plan and uh, proceed as if the Spirit of God were at their disposal, as if they could make the wind come at their beck and their command. Church of God, he says, you are powerless. You have no strength, no might to convert a single soul apart from the Spirit of God. Now, we may not have our revivalists today in some circles. We know them and we see them in other places and they're as false and as fraudulent there as they are anywhere else. But how often, even among those who might add their amen to Spurgeon's statement at this point, nevertheless act in practice as if we do believe that certain men can yoke the Spirit of God. We, we have people who, who we, we know that they are blessed of God, but then we sort of think, if we can only book them, then the Spirit of God is obliged to turn up. There's a dreadful notion, it seems to me, in the Church of Christ at large, that the Holy Spirit is somehow obliged to smile upon the world's celebrities. And so if you've got a Christian who is thought much of in the world because of the profile that they have, that, that somehow they're more persuasive than anyone else. Now, I'm not saying that a Christian who's in the public eye couldn't or shouldn't use their influence in order to glorify God. But this notion that somehow the Holy Spirit is obliged to work under certain circumstances is, is again a, a reflection on this denial of the fact that it is sovereign work. We want ministers then, says Spurgeon, always to feel that it is not the mere adaptation of the sermon to the salvation of souls, but the application of the sermon to the soul that accomplishes anything. That is, that you may even have a sermon that you are preaching with a view to the salvation of sinners, but it is the Spirit's work. It is not our earnestness, but the energy of the Spirit going with our earnestness, which quickens the heart and arouses the conscience. Sunday school teachers need to feel this too. It does not unnerve you. It will not paralyze you. It makes you strong. Here is the confidence that I don't have to be someone famous, that I don't need to be someone who is prodigiously gifted, that if the Holy Spirit chooses to smile upon my endeavours, then he will accomplish what he purposes. When we are utterly empty, when we feel our own weakness, that is when we are strong, because we put the matter in the hand of God. We use the means, but God works the results. So, says Spurgeon, go each of you, beloved of your God, to your separate works, casting aside all your own trust and depending simply, wholly and entirely upon God. In other words, then, this never discourages the saint to know that without Christ we can do nothing. We acknowledge it. We endorse it entirely. We glory in it. We say, that is true. And actually, if I could do it, I would muck it up but it is by God that these things are done. And that's my hope, and that's my expectation, and that's my joy. And so Spurgeon says, I do believe there'd be much more good done in the world if some of those who try to do good look less to their own carnal power to do it. And as he closes his sermon, he tells this little story of a man called Dr. Guise, who was a very learned man, who was in the habit of preparing his sermons most carefully and used to read them very accurately. He did this for years, 
and there was never known to be a sinner saved under his ministry. Never such a wonder. He was an earnest man. He was a good man, uh, and he longed for a blessing. And then one day, while praying in the pulpit that God would make him useful, when he'd finished his prayer, he was found to be stone blind. Now, rather than saying, I've gone blind, so we'll have to cancel things for today, he preached the sermon extempore. That is, the sermon which he had prepared, he preached rather than read. And people didn't notice his blindness, but they'd never heard the doctor preach such a sermon as that before. There was deep attention and there were souls saved. The man was taken off from himself. He could no longer rely upon his own preparation. He had to rely in the very act of preaching upon the Spirit of God to bring the Word of God to bear. And an old lady present said, perhaps unkindly but truthfully, Doctor, we have never heard you preach like this before. And if that's the result of your being blind, it is a pity you were not blind 20 years ago, for you have done more good today than you've done in 20 years. Well, that's a little harsh, maybe. But, says Spurgeon, I don't know whether it wouldn't be a good thing if some of our fine sermon readers were struck blind. Perhaps that's something that we, if we're preachers listening to this, need to take account of. If we were compelled to be less elaborate in the preparation of our sermons, to lose some half dozen hard words which we always write down as soon as we meet with them, use them as stones in the middle of the sermon. If when uh, we came into the pulpit, though we might be condemned as speaking vulgar language, we speak of the commonplace things that poor people could appreciate. In other words, if we stopped performing and actually started preaching, if we stopped our polishing and actually just got on with the job of ministering the word of God, then perhaps then abandoning or forced to abandon our own strength, our own wisdom, then the Lord might be pleased to take us and use us. So let the church feel that her power is not mental power, but spiritual power, that it is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And she then might use all her learning, all her education and all her eloquence if she only felt that these were not her weapons in the hand of God for the pulling down of strongholds, then she would finally learn to use them well. That these are God's weapons and God uses them in our hands. So this is a, this is a stirring, this is a, a convicting, this is a, in some ways, you might say, perhaps not the, the finest constructed sermon, but it's a very model of what Spurgeon's talking about. It's not even, and I think this is worth remembering, it's not even Spurgeon's earnestness and eloquence that obtains the blessing. He is a man who has consecrated all those gifts and all that intensity to the service of God and relying on him obtains a blessing. And perhaps that's the, the first lesson that we need to learn from this, whether or not we are Christians or unconverted people or preachers of the gospel, evangelists in our own proper sphere, that without Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. May God help us to not just believe this, not even just to feel it, but actually to live in the light of these things. Thank you for your patience. 
Thank you for listening to these things. As I said, God willing, next week, the last sermon in the sixth volume, the last of the new Park Street volumes, is Preaching Man's Privilege and Power, Sermon 347. So do uh, listen ahead if you're able to. If you'd like to sign up to get a a newsletter each week with the readings and a, a PDF of next week's sermon, then you can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. Find the uh, From the Heart of Spurgeon button, follow through and do sign up. And I look forward to speaking to you, God willing, on another occasion. And until then, may we learn and live the truth that without Christ we can do nothing, but in him we are enabled indeed to do all things. Thank you once again and goodbye. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.